Awesome to worship our God together. Wow. I just want to share with you guys some things that God is doing in my life. Um, throughout my life, I have tried to seek my satisfaction and my fulfillment and my joy and the things of this world, like success or popularity or attention or relationships. And more and more, I've grown dissatisfied and empty with the things of the world. They've only left me longing and searching. And so one morning, I asked the Lord to satisfy me and to show me what true fulfillment in Him is. And He began this beautiful but painful process of rooting out the other idols and the other lovers in my heart that were taking His place and he's making me captivated by him so much so that the things of the world are losing their luster and their power that they once had over me. So by God's grace and by his power, I can proclaim to you that the world does not satisfy me, that I do not find my satisfaction in things, in success, in popularity, or even in my boyfriend, as wonderful as he is. <laughs> I find my satisfaction in Christ alone. My name is Aubrey Cantrell, and I'm a transformed follower of Jesus Christ. It's really not uh, good morning anymore, is it? Good afternoon. Good to see everybody. Um, you guys know that when I went to Israel in September, that that thing had a kind of a life-changing effect, and it was more than just the experience, it's the people that I went with. They probably affected my life, Libby's life, as much as anybody, and we got a few of them that drove all the way up from Indiana, Ohio, to just be here this morning. I don't know where you guys are, Joe, Ida, raise your hands, right down here. Can you guys, like, welcome these guys? Well, um, if you weren't here last week, I got to say you missed it. it. It might have been far and away at least one of my favorite moments in this gym. And someone this week said to me that they were describing our church to a friend and they they described it as the locker room church. And, uh, like, you have no idea how much I love that, all right? Because, first of all, I, I don't really, some of you guys are, like, laughing. Um, I don't really see myself as a preacher. I really don't like to communicate. I don't like to stand in front of people. Um, but it's something I know that God's called me to do, so for that reason, I love it. But I'm a coach. And that's how I'm wired. And growing up, for me, the locker room was that place before a game where I could look all my teammates in the eyes with that sense of anticipation that we are going to step out onto the field, not as a bunch of individuals, but as a team. And we are going to go out there with all that we had and just leave it all out there. And the locker room then was the place where we came back after the game and we just high-fived each other, all sweaty, sometimes bloody, just knowing that all of us, just, we just put it out there. All right? 
So if someone wants to call this church the locker room church, I love that because that means the playing field is where? Out there. All right? But we come here to high five, get fired up, and filled up so we can live it up out there. Amen? All right. Let's uh, step into this theme that we're in right now, this theme of the city. Hopefully you're starting to realize it's a, it's a really strong theme within the Bible. The city is front and center as to what God is doing. In a way that you can actually look at the Bible, it's, you can see it as a tale of two cities. You have the city of man, oftentimes referred to as Babel or Babylon. It's the place that's centered on pride. It's the place where we go to make a name for ourselves. And, and the result is just what Babel means, confusion and chaos. But there's this other city, the city of God, and it's simply characterized as this place and community where God is and where God dwells. And what that produces is shalom. And so we're going to add another piece to this today. And let's turn in our Bibles to... Oh, what a great chapter. Hebrews chapter 11. All the chapters of the Bible are great. But this one is special. As some say, this is the hall of fame of the greats who have gone before us. And we're going to look at one of these greats. In fact, if you can say it about anyone, you could probably say it about Abraham. He was the greatest of the greats, apart from Jesus. Let's stand and read. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 8. By faith, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith. By faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger, like an exile in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens, exiles, and strangers on earth. People who say such things are crazy. The world. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Have, if they had been looking 
thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But they burned the boats. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's not ashamed to call us brother and sister, for he has prepared a city for them. This is God's word. You can be seated. And if you get bored during this sermon, just go right back to Hebrews 11 and quick keep reading because I can't believe I stopped where I stopped. The context, just real briefly, this letter is written either by Paul, Barnabas, Silas, we're not sure, but it's written to Christ followers who are enduring a major crisis. And some of that crisis is actually spelled out in the chapter before in chapter 10, where it talks about the crisis of Christ followers um, being persecuted and being sent to prison and having their property confiscated from them. They're in crisis. I want to start by drawing our attention to, ver- to chapter or verse 10. For he was looking, Abraham, looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. God is building a city. God is a city architect. God is a city builder. Now hopefully I'm just stating things that are becoming obvious to you after the the last several weeks. But what does this text tell us about the city? God's city. Well, it's a city that Abraham never saw in his lifetime. So therefore, we know that the city of God is a future city. It's a city that is to come. And for those of us who are, know our Bibles, we go to the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22. And we, we, we read how God one day will bring down his eternal city. And how awesome and glorious it's going to be. No crying in this city. No more suffering in this city. No more death in this city. And God himself... Not going to be living in the country, the suburbs. It's going to be right downtown. Now, in light of that, I don't want us, though, to fall into the trap of thinking that we live in the city of man now and we wait for the city of God. The city of God is only future because if we think this way, we're going to miss the most exciting thing that's happening right now, right here. And that's this. God's building his city, his glorious city, right now, right in this room. And God is building this city, the city of God, to redeem the city of man. And I want to just keep driving this home. I want us to know That when you get rescued by God, when he takes you up out of the mud and the mire and the pit, and he places you in a firm place, a place where you stand, puts a new song in your heart, 
doesn't just rescue you to take you out of the world, but he rescues you, he rescues us to place us in the world, in the heart of the world, to partner with him to redeem the world. Just want us to just know that. And this is something God has been doing from the beginning. He does it with Abraham, and then he does it with Abraham's descendants, his people. That's why in Deuteronomy it says, I carried you on eagle's wings, and I took you into cities you didn't build. He took them out, and he took them into a city. Psalm 107 talks about wandering around in the desert, people just groping to get into a city. God says, I rescued you, I placed you in a city. And so that city is not just something future, right now, and it's right here. In fact, it's stated in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Listen to what it says. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now catch the verb there. It's not that you will come to that mountain, you will come to that city, but it says it's past tense. You have come. Because that city has come. And so Israel's mission was to be a city placed upon a hill. And God gave them a street corner and he placed them at the world's crossroads. And so when Jesus then looks at his disciples and says, you are a city set on a hill, he's not just coming up with some new idea or new concept because this was always to be their mission to the world, to be the city of God, partnering with God to redeem the city or cities of man. Now what's exciting is when you take that paradigm, plug it into the book of Acts, and you see how they're doing it. They're doing it. This community, small community of people who have been shaken, shaken by God, are now shaking the world. And when you read Acts, what you realize is that they go to cities. They target all the major cities and they go. I love what, what it says in Acts chapter 17. You wouldn't notice this in your NIV. But they just arrested a couple of them. And the complaint about these Christians who are shaking the world as they bring them before the authorities. It, this is their complaint. They say they're turning the world upside down. I want to ask this right now. Are we turning the world upside down? Are we? I think it's fair also then to ask, why not? Well, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think part of it's because we've fallen prey to one of two great temptations, either temptation to accommodation or isolation. Accommodation is 
when we let go of our distinctiveness as God's people and become just like the world around us. And I hear this when I hear people say that the church needs to become relevant. Really? If we're true to God, are we really going to be relevant? I mean, if we're true to God, we're going to be painfully different from the world around us. And so our goal then isn't to be relevant. In fact, I think the most relevant thing we can do today is to be irrelevant. Because what I'm holding right now is timeless. And the God who wrote this is timeless. And the people we belong to throughout time were never bound to a certain time. It was never bound to a certain race. In fact, you get to the end of the story, Revelation chapter 5, what an awesome picture this is. People from all times, all people groups, all languages, gathered around the throne, worshiping him. So you've got to be careful about accommodation. The other thing is the temptation of isolation. This is the temptation to escape the world. It's to run to the hills, circle the wagons, keep a bad world out. Don't taste, don't touch, don't go there. And I'm convinced that if we fall prey to either one of these temptations, we'll become impotent, we'll never change lives, and we will never transform the city. That's why I think Jeremiah 29, God's prescription to his people when they're living as exiles, is something I just want to keep before us. And there's two things that God says through Jeremiah to his people. Number one, he says this, don't decrease but increase. Don't become less. Don't lower the bar but raise it. Be all that I've called you to be as a people. Be as white, hot, be as holy, surrendered, be as God-like and Jesus-like as I've called you to be. And then move in. Move all the way in using your distinctiveness to serve the city. City of God moving into the city of man. I know some of you are asking this question because I'm getting the emails and I'm having the conversations. Does this mean I need to move? I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's not for me to answer. But what I do know is this. I think every person should at least put that baby on the table 
and say, God, what is it that you want us to do? Because like Abraham went to the country and Lot went to the city, God's going to call some of us to the country and he's going to call some of us to the suburbs and he's going to call some of us to the city. So I don't know what God's calling you to do in that, but at least we've got to put it on the table. And I do like what James Boyce had to say. He's no longer alive. But he said, until we get 10% of Christians living in all the cities of our country for at least 10 years, I want Christians to stop bellyaching about culture. And why is he saying that? Because as our cities go, so goes culture. So let's put that thing on the table and ask God. And not sit here and conclude where all the super Christians live in the, Christ, in the city and all the less Christians. No way. Are you kidding? God is just all over. But let's just ask God what he wants us to do. But the deeper issue, to move or not to move, it's deeper than this. It, it, and I think this thing needs to be resolved by this question. It's a question that I've been asking a lot of myself and I've been throwing it out regularly to you. It's this. Who are you? And why are you here? Because I think that we have forgotten who we are, and maybe even more significantly, I think we've forgotten why we are here. And here's why I want to look at our text this morning, because I think it answers these two questions. Look at verse 9 and 13. 9 says, By faith Abraham made his home in the promised land like an exile like a stranger in a foreign country. Look at verse 14. It says, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country that is not their own. I'm sorry, i got to go to 13. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens, exiles, and strangers on earth. This is who we are. Those two verses just flushed it out. Who are you? You're in exile. We are exiles. This world is not our home. It never was. It never will be. We were not made for this world. We were made for Eden. And until God brings back Eden, which he will, we are nothing but exiles. We are strangers in this world. Do you know this? Because as hard as you and I try to make this world home, we're never going to feel at home. And if we do feel at home, we probably need to start asking ourselves some questions like, do we really know him and belong to him? So that's, that's who we are. We're exiles. Why are we here? We're here to go. We're here to be sent. Look at verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. And I love this, even though he did not know where he was going. 
So here's what you need to picture with Abraham. Abraham's comfortable. He's living the good life. All of a sudden, God breaks into his world. Says, Abraham, get out. Go. And Abraham's response is, but God, I can't. I like what I have, and I like where I live. Uh Uh-uh. Next morning, there goes Abraham. He gets out. Not even knowing where he was going. No five-year plan, no one-year plan, no really even one-week plan. But God and his promise. And he just, he trusted God. He trusted the promise of God. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And through you and your families, I'm going to bless the world. Abraham went, not knowing where he's going. Do you know how often God does this in the Bible? Does it with Moses. Moses encounters God at the burning bush. What does God say to him? Get out of this desert. Go to Egypt. Tell my people, get out. Does it with Isaiah. Isaiah's in the temple, just experiencing the glory of God. The train of his robe, he says, filled the whole temple. The seraphim on each side saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In that moment, he's just smoked. Woe is me, I'm ruined. God just puts that coal on him, cleanses him. Then ask the question, now that you've experienced, encountered me, whom will I send? Send me, Lord. Have you ever said that to God? God, here am I. Here am I. Send me. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Here am I. Here am I. Send me. I'm a pastor today because I prayed that. As a junior at Wheaton College, I remember it vividly on the track one night experiencing God, the stars, I don't know how they shone, shone through the, the, the city suburbs and all the lights, but I saw them, and I worshipped him, and I felt him. I got on my knees that night, and I said, I give it all up. Here am I. Insignificant me. But I'm willing, God. The disciples, three, three and a half, four years, they experienced God in Jesus. They walked with him. They talked with him. Did life with him. And at the end, get out. Go. I'm sending you. Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus comes face to face with the glory of Christ. Get out. Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. See, this is God's method. It's his way. Encounters with the living God on this side of heaven are always going to have this explosive missional quality to them. Why? Because God is missional. So who are you? Why are you here? And do you right now see yourself as an exile, a stranger in this world, but sent by God to this world. 
See, until this burns in our hearts, until this just kind of forges our identity, we're never going to shake the world. We're never going to turn the world upside down. We're never going to be the city of God reaching the city of man. Can I keep pushing this? If you say no, I'm still going to. What is an exile? Here's a definition. Exiles are people who no longer choose to do life based on comfort, safety, familiarity, or being in control. But rather, an exile does life where they can best carry out the kingdom of heaven, where they can best get the business of God done. That's an exile. And here's what verse 12 says about Abraham. It says, Abraham was as good as dead. That's an exile. An exile is someone who is good as dead. You say dead to what? Dead to the world. Dead to the spirit of the age. Dead to the opinions of people. Dead to the need for the world's stuff and things, dead to all the world's ideas about what smart is, dead to what's in, what's out, what's cool, what's not cool. They're dead to stock markets. They're dead to political outcomes. They're dead to whether they're getting or whether it's being taken away. They're dead. Where money is just money. Home is just a roof over our head. Clothes are just those things we use to cover ourselves. Cars are just ways to get from A to B. I had to add that fourth one. Friday I'm preparing my sermon. Halfway through. I'm literally right at this spot. God has a way. Libby comes in. I can't tell you, Rod. I'm like, what? Can't. She backed out, not knowing my car's right behind it. Boom! <laughs> okay? Just broken parts and pieces and dents and. It's just a car, right? What are you talking about, Rod? I love my wife. God uses her in so many ways. <laughs> right, men? Married husbands? It's a beautiful thing. Bless God for the retreat this weekend, too. It's just awesome. Yep. You can clap. Um, in exile... An exile is someone who holds everything they possess just like this. Open hands. Easy come, easy go. They're not white knuckled. They're not just like clinging. No, this is mine. Can't take that away. Can't lose that. It's just like this. If you're like, where are you getting this stuff from, Rod? I mean, that sounds cool. I'd like to be that way. But where are you getting it from? I'm getting it from Abraham. Look at this guy. 
Abraham, says God, leave your home, your security, your comfort, all the things that you know. Go get out. And Abraham's like, no, he just, okay, I trust you, God. Now, Abraham, you've been with me, you've walked with me. You've shown that I'm going to be true to my promise. But now Isaac, this possession that means the most to you, the son who you love, take him up the mountain, put him on an altar, and kill him. And Abraham's like, what? How dare you? The Bible says early, the next morning, Abraham and Isaac. So when I read this, I ask, where do I get the power to live this way? How are we going to break out of our apathy and throw off this insatiable need for safety and for comfort and for control over life where we can risk much and therefore potentially do much for God. How are we going to become the kind of people who don't run from suffering and from need? Whether it's cancer in our midst, or a broken marriage, or a lonely person, or whether it's AIDS victims, or orphans, or the homeless, well, we're not just kind of retreating into our TV rooms. But we're actually doing something that costs us our time, our resources. I mean, where do people like this come from? And the answer is faith. Faith. It's faith. This whole chapter is about faith. By faith. This whole book is about people who lived by faith. It's throughout these verses describing Abraham. By faith, Abraham went. By faith, Abraham gave it all up. By faith, Abraham went up the mountain with Isaac. By faith. We're never going to live as exiles without faith. Faith in what? Because faith always needs an object. There's no such thing as just faith and faith. Look at verse 10. For Abraham was looking forward. That word there is, it's intense Seeking. For Abraham was seeking the kingdom of heaven. He was seeking the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's the object of faith. It's the city of God. It's this already not yet city of God. It's already in that we already possess it. 
We belong to it. We participate in it. We've experienced an aspect of it, whether it be the first fruits of resurrection or the first fruits of walking and knowing Him. But as Romans 8 says, as much as all this is, we still groan. And what do we groan for? Home. We're not home. And if you're groaning today, it's because you're probably in exile and you're just feeling like, where's home? It's not here. But what it causes us to be is just homesick. Homesick. And that's why in 14 and 16 it says people who say such crazy things because the world thinks they're crazy show they are looking, they're seeking for a country. It's not this country. It's that country. And verse 16, it says instead they were longing. That word is just intense desire. They were desiring for not this country, not this world, not the city of man. They're, they're, they're desiring, intensely desiring another world, another country, another city. And who's at the heart of that? God. That's faith. Do you have faith today? Faith it's about longing. It's about desiring. It's about seeking God. So people of faith live in this world like the family whose dad is away. Day after day, Week after week, year after year, the family waits, and they write, and they talk on the phone, but then finally the day comes, off in the distance, the kids see dad. And now these kids, all grown up, run with all their might to welcome him, and there's a wife who's been faithful. And this running and this clinging is powerful. That's how I see verse 13. I see my lover coming. Because this is how I picture the promises of God. It's out there. It's on the horizon. It's coming to me. It's God. It's all that God promises for me in Jesus. It's the final consummation of his glorious city. It's home. And as it's coming, I welcome him. And I say, I see you. I want you more than I want all of this. People of Hebrews had this kind of faith. 
Look at verse 33 and 34 of chapter 10. These are brothers and sisters, you guys, that we're going to spend eternity with. Just think about the stories they're going to tell in heaven. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecutions. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those who were in prison and you joyfully accepted. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better, a better, and a lasting possession. Now, if you want to know what's coming, going on in these verses, let's, let me just bring it home. It, it would be like if maybe 10 or 20 of us who are here right now weren't here because during this past week, because they're Christ followers, they were arrested, put in prison. So I come here this morning, I say, hey, look, about 20 of us this week have been put in prison. They're in prison. And I just start naming the names. And you're like, oh, 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 you're kidding me. Hackmans are in prison? Well, there's 12 of them. <laughs> Zydema? Zydema's in prison? Yeah, they know he's a stinking stud walking with the Lord. Fetic? prison we say let's pray let's pray so we pray some of you are like no no no, no. let's not just pray let's go visit them so we go and we visit them as many as we can we get there we pray with them and then all of a sudden we come back from that and we find out that our houses are all spray-painted and ransacked, and even some of them have been put on fire. And we get in our locker room, and we're like, yes! Did you see that run down the sidelines? Did you see that block I made? It's like, yes! We're going to be in heaven with these guys. It's, it's, it's in Acts 5, 40 and 41. The disciples, they just come before the authorities. They get beaten like a pulp. They come back in the locker room. They're just high-fiving. Yes, I got to suffer for Jesus. It's Paul and Silas also getting beaten like a pulp. And there their feet are in stocks and they're in prison. And these stocks, I mean, they put their legs in excruciating pain. And they're worshiping Jesus. We've been counted worthy to suffer and to lose. I want to be like this. Don't you want to be like this? Don't you want to be free from your love of things, from this whole roller coaster right now that our world is on? Don't you want your life to say to the world what their lives said to their world? World, there is a possession that is so much better, so long-lasting, that if you lose anything or everything, 
in the name of that possession, it's okay. In fact, it's great. This is what shook the world. You see, it's this simple. If what we love, what we love, and what we live for, and what we long for, and the place we call home is out there, then we're not going to seek and long for the things that are here. We are free. This is faith. Faith isn't just putting some data in my brain. Faith isn't just putting a few labels on my life like Christian or Baptist or Christian Reformed or Charismatic. Faith is seeking. It's longing. It's desiring God. It's, it's treasuring God above all things. That's faith. Here's the question. Got to land this plane. Do you trust him? I mean, how tight right now is your grip on this world? Your home, your possessions, your job, your 401k, your kids, your dreams about how your life should go in this world. Will you trust him? Will you put all the chips on that side of the table, all of them on the side of the table called Christ? Some of you are saying, I can't trust him. Do you know who the ultimate exile, the ultimate stranger in a foreign land See what God does in Jesus? He just sends Jesus into this great world. <laughs> Jesus left the ultimate comfort of heaven, became the ultimate exile, the ultimate stranger, the ultimate relocation happened in him. He gave up ultimate, ultimate control. He experienced ultimate vulnerability as the ultimate sent one. Will you trust him? Some of you are in crisis today. Some of you are in significant crisis. Maybe it's your marriage. In fact, through my own experience of marriage and counseling many marriages, I know that there's probably those 10% of marriages where horrendous abuse is taking place and nothing just can't be fixed in the home. But 90% of the time, it's because one or both of the spouses will not trust God. And they say things like, well, if I stay, it means my life will be miserable, and God doesn't want me to be miserable. <laughs> but then I picture Abraham. 
And when God asked him to give up the dream of a comfortable, safe life, he goes. Not wondering, oh, is my life going to be miserable, but just saying the whole time, I trust you, God, I trust you. And God says, give up Isaac. But Abraham doesn't say, oh, God, but wait a second, not Isaac. All the promises that you've given to me are going to go through Isaac. You can't take Isaac away, not Isaac. No. Abraham takes him up the mountain, and he puts him under the knife. And this is why Abraham is in the book. And so, the issue for some of you today, will you stay married? For others, it's will you stay single? For some, it's will you leave the job you're in? For others, will you stay in your job? For others, it's will you relocate? For others, it's will you stay right where you are? For some, it's the decision to do some things that are costly. Where you've given up significant amounts of time and it costs you to give up this time, but time so you can be with Jesus. Or you're giving up significant resources, whether it be your house or whatever you have, and you're giving it up because you want to see the kingdom of God break forth. Some it might be where you become a missionary to China. For others, it might be we become a missionary to your own street corner. See, and, and, and right away we feel, but wait a second, if I actually do this, if I take this step, this step of obedience, my life will be miserable. It's not going to work, Rod. I promise you it's not going to work. And I say, you know what? Think about Abraham. I think he's wondering if it's going to work. Will we trust him? Even if it means we have to trust him to raise the dead. Today I want some of you to stand. I'm inviting you to stand, not all of you. I'm inviting only those to stand who are in a crisis right now, a significant crisis. It could be a relational crisis. It could be a family crisis. It could be a work crisis. It could be a future-related crisis. It could be a spiritual, sin-related, moral crisis. And it's just messing with you. And I want you to stand right now. If you can say this from your heart, you can say these two things. Number one, God, I want to desire you more than anything in the midst of this crisis. And secondly, God, I want to trust you for obedience. Even though I can't see how obedience will make my life anything but miserable, I'm going to trust you. Would you please stand so I can pray for you? I know how good it feels right now to stand. Doesn't that feel good? These are brothers and sisters. I want every person who's sitting right now to pick a person right now and start just praying for them. 
Got somebody? Join me in prayer. God, as I already stated, these are brothers and sisters of ours. And Lord, it's appropriate that they're standing because those of us are sitting have to actually look up to them right now. Because God's stakes are being put in the ground by people in this community. And the stake is this. They are declaring to you that they want to be written up in Hebrews chapter 11. They want that kind of faith. They're putting all their chips on that side of the table, Jesus. So this is what I pray. God, place desire in their heart. God, let their hearts explode with desire for you. So much so that all the stuff around them, all the things, people, and places that mean so much to them, that desire, Lord, would set them free. The things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glorious face. And God, that you would give them trust, God, obedience, that they could trust you for obedience, that they could take steps of trust towards you and in you. And as they do that, God, I just pray your finger would touch them and remind them, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm walking with you. For all of us, Lord, increase our faith, Lord.